the thing about startups is, you know, the company that I started with when it was four of us in a room filling little perfume bottles is not the company that it was, you know, six months later when we were in Y Combinator. And it wasn't the same company that it was, you know, a year later when we had 20,000 subscribers or, you know, several hundred subscribers that it is today and, and several hundred employees. And so that piece of the entrepreneurial journey of just Always keeping an eye and understanding the evolution, I think, is super, super important. Named to Entrepreneur Magazine's 100 Most Powerful Women of 2020, Rachel Tenbrink is a data-driven founder, board member, investor, and top Latinx in tech leader. She was co-founder and CMO of Scentbird, a Y Combinator-backed fragrance subscription service that raised $29 million in venture funding, who went on to open her own investment fund, Red Bike Capital. She is one of just 90 Latinas to have raised over $1 million in VC funding. You're about to hear why Rachel says taking up space and owning what you're good at is crucial to success as a powerful woman in business. Coming up, Rachel shares why managing your emotions and mental health is important as an entrepreneur. how to be strategic about using customer feedback to pivot and scale your business. She shares what to look for in your co-founders, her best tips on how to keep yourself brutally honest so you aren't distracted by vanity metrics. And finally, Rachel shares why nurturing your tribe of fellow entrepreneurs is key to making connections with investors. This is the Entrepreneurista Podcast, presented by Socialfly. It's the best business meeting you'll ever have with must-hear real-life looks at how leading women in business are getting it done. And what it takes to build and grow a successful company. It's beyond the gram. With no filters, no limits, and plenty of surprises. Rachel, we are so excited to finally sit down and have this conversation with you. This has been a long time in the making. We have talked about this recording for many months now, and we're so excited this day is finally here. So thank you so much for being here with us today. I am very, very excited to be here. And it definitely took a little bit of time, but so excited to be here. Here we are. All, all good things are worth the wait, right? That's what we learn, exactly. learn in life and business. <laughs> You have such an incredible story and background, Rachel. Before co-founding Scentbird, you had over 20 years of experience building billion-dollar brands. I would love to hear a little bit about your background prior to now starting your, your fund. Sure. So I'll start kind of way back. I'm originally from Costa Rica. Uh, my parents are Cuban. They left in 1959, right when Costa came. Uh, came to the States. And so, you know, I definitely have that upbringing of being an immigrant, of having to sort of figure out your values and, and what's important and how do you earn a living, right? And so, you know, my parents left young. They didn't speak a word of English. They had nothing. They left everything behind and made a life, came to the States. And then my dad got a job offer in Costa Rica. So that's how I was born in Costa Rica. And I always joke that I am truly a fisherman's daughter because that was my dad was in the tuna fish and the tuna canning business. So I really, really am a fisherman's daughter. Came to the States when I was 18 and, you know, kind of worked my butt off. And I like to tell the story of, of, you know, my parents and my dad being an entrepreneur because I always knew in the back of my mind that I would be an entrepreneur. 
but it took me a long road to get there. And I think that's important to talk about. Uh, so in my case, you know, I did my undergrad in Boston, uh, started my career with Gillette, and the next 15 years were just a blur. I started at L'Oreal. Uh, this was right after September 11th, mm-hmm. which I know just happened. From there, I went to Estee Lauder. I was briefly with Bacardi, Elizabeth Arden. And, you know, there is a huge value in that corporate training, that structured thinking processes that you learn, sort of, you know, a systematic approach to building that I think was very, very helpful for me. But eventually, I kind of got bored. (laughs) (laughs) I felt like, you know, this was 2014 and the digital sort of revolution was already well on its way. Companies like Warby and Dollar Shave Club were completely disrupting the landscape and the consumer side. And, you know, I'd go to my boss at at Estee Lauder or Lauder and be like, look at what all these things. And they're like, oh yeah, you know, the internet, it's interesting. It's, it's like a magazine, right? And you're like, no, 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 no. There's so much more you can do here. And so that sort of gave me that final push to start thinking about starting my own company and eventually what became Scentbird. How did you come up with the idea for Scentbird? It was a team effort. So I met my three co-founders. At the time, actually, it was just Maria and Sergey because Andre who's the CTO and our fourth co-founder was still in Russia, we started to talk about the fragrance category and how unfriendly it was, right? It's sort of like, you know, you go to the store, this pushy salespeople, it's super overwhelming. How do you know what you like? There's all this vocabulary that's super confusing. And so before we sort of crystallized the idea of Scentbird as a subscription, it really just started from this idea of, you know, how do we help people find fragrances that they're likely to love. Mm. And, you know, one of the things that's like a lot of company, there's a lot of blood, sweat and tears between when you identify the market and when you actually have product market fit. Mm. So for us, you know, we went through a couple of iterations. We started with an idea of like, what if we just did a recom- an incredible recommendation engine, like something that hadn't been done before. And we were looking at really visual ways of demonstrating scent. And that was kind of cool, except we found out that nobody really wants to pay for recommendations. <laughs> so, you know, interesting concept, very hard to monetize the business model. Then as we evolved, we had the idea of a try before you buy. So we would use this incredible recommendation engine that we had built this really cool visual platform that's still sort of in the, in the back of what Scentbird is today. And we would ship you three bottles of perfume with three samples and you got to try the samples, keep what you like, ship back the rest. Do not ever do that model. <laughs> How come? It's a horrible <laughs> business model. Well, First of all, from a cash flow perspective, it's super difficult because you're taking the, the inventory risk, you're buying upfront three bottles, and then you know it's a lot of cash and a lot of time in between when the consumer picks the fragrance, ships back the rest, then you can ship it to somebody else. Bad, bad business model. <laughs> so we quickly realized that was not going to work. 
And, you know, I think that there was a moment, a sort of come to Jesus meeting. I remember when the four of us kind of sat in a room and we're like, well, do we think about other things? We were thinking about a like class pass for kids and doing a subscription for home decor and all this other completely different ideas that we never did. And, you know, one of our mentors, Michael Siebel, who's the head of uh, Y Combinator, spoke to Maria and was like, you guys know a lot about fragrance. Why don't you figure out something else with fragrance? <laughs> and Maria actually came up with the, I remember Maria came to the office, you know, we were still sort of in this accelerator and said, you know, hey, there's, there's this little, you know, sprayer. What if we did, you know, filled it up and we're like, well, let's try it. And, you know, one of the things that I always talk about is this idea of like, when do you know product market fit, right? And for us, it was this sort of incredible little shift, right? Where before we were working so hard to drive people to the website and it was like, nobody converted. And all of a sudden it was like two people converted and then five people converted and then 10 and 20. And I think that's something that as founders is so important of like that journey where you start to, okay, maybe, you know, how do you balance like not falling in love with the baby too much and being brutally real, but at the same time, starting to learn how to read those early signals. I have a question about your founders. How did, how did all of you connect? And did you all have different skill sets? Who was doing what in the business? So it's a funny story because we connected through a woman that I met at an event and I was helping her out you know, I was doing a couple of consulting projects just to help out founders at the time. I was really trying to get into the startup ecosystem. And this woman insisted that I should meet Maria. And the funny part is that, you know, after we launched Scentbird, we realized that neither one of us had ever talked to her again. So <laughs> this person that made this incredible match and such an impact in all our lives uh, as we started Scentbird, and we just kind of lost touch. We never saw her again. But basically, we were quite I think the word diversity gets thrown around a lot in startups. And I can't tell you how important it was for Scentbird and how valuable. And it wasn't just the fact that we had gender diversity. So we were two men and two women. Uh, it wasn't just the fact that we had, if you want to call it ethnic diversity. So one Costa Rican, three Russians. <laughs> That's extreme ethnic diversity. It's also age diversity. I had been working for 20 years. They were uh, just starting off their careers, had just immigrated from Russia. It was also just professional experience. So Andre was a, a very skilled programmer and he was our CTO. Maria was our CEO. Sergey was our head of product and I was the head of marketing and revenue. And what that did for, you know, there's pros and cons to having such a, in a way, large founder team. Mm -hmm. I mean, four founders is a lot of founders and it definitely has its challenges. But the flip side of that is, you know, from day one, we could do a lot because mm -hmm. we were just there. I mean, we had a, an engineer, we had a programmer, we had a head of product, we just designed stuff. You know, Maria and I would come up with ideas or they would come up with ideas. And it was just like, okay, let's just do this. We wanted to, let's go do part. Okay, let's just do, you know, we had enough people to move fast. And so that was definitely a competitive advantage for Scentbird. A lot of what being an entrepreneur is, is being adaptable, going with the flow, changing quickly, pivoting. And you talked about that earlier, but 
do you have any advice for anyone on how long they should, how much time they should give an idea to see if it's working or not before they move on to the next thing? Because there is, mm. while you do have to change quickly, you do also need an element of patience. Don't yeah. you think? I mean, I don't know if there is a, a one, a single answer that is the right answer for everything. I do think that you have to set yourself some sort of boundaries in terms of looking at ideas. I think that there's, I think it's not just time, but it's also listening to feedback, listening to feedback, not just from investors, because investors are great, but in the end, they're usually not your end consumers, but really listening to the customer. Mm. And so what I encourage you know, early founders to do. It's not just saying, well, I'm going to give it a month or I'm going to give it three months, but think more in terms of customer conversations. Talk to, you know, 20 customers, 50 customers, 100 customers. What are they saying? And being very, you know, one of the things that was very helpful for me is early in my career, I actually worked for a market research firm and ran focus groups. Mm. And one of the key things they teach you when you run focus groups is not to be too like what, how, because you don't want to feel, make the person feel too defensive, but you also don't want to lead them. You want to make sure that you're asking open-ended questions. And I think that's a super important skill as a founder, because, you know, if you ask your mother, do you like my idea? Of course, she's going to love your idea. She's your mother. So I think that, you know, making sure you're, you're talking to customers who don't know you and love you and, and asking questions in the right way to get the right types of answers. I think that's the most important way to get that sense of like, look, am I just going down this rabbit hole and just being brutally honest Mm -hmm. with yourself? Because, you know, as entrepreneurs, we work so hard and it's, it's inevitable that you're, you know, it's like you talk out of two sides of your mouth because on the one hand, everybody tells you like, you have to be your most passionate advocate. You have to believe this and more than anybody else. And on the other hand, it's, well, don't fall in love with it. Be very (laughs) practical, you know? So there's, so, so that's why I, I feel like more than time, it's customers, like make sure you're having those conversations and taking the time to summarize that information, be really strategic about how you use that information. Rachel, what would you say are some of the biggest learning lessons that you learned from your time at Sanford? And when did you know it was the the right time for you to move on and start your next venture? So I think in terms of, of what I learned is, you know, I love the early stage. I love that ride. I think that there's a lot to be said about managing your emotions and the fact that when you're an entrepreneur, when you're a founder, the ups and downs of that journey, and often it's within the same day, hour, <laughs> <laughs> you know, you feel it, you know, I, I, I'd been working for a long time and you definitely, I definitely cared about my work when I was at Estee Lauder or at L'Oreal, but the ups and downs of the entrepreneurial journey are a lot more, much more augmented. And so I think that For me, a lot of it was managing those emotions, managing your mental health, your stress levels. Don't get too high. Don't get too low. Just keep it trucking along. So I think that is is definitely an important thing I learned. The other part that I learned is to the point about, you know, resilience and flexibility is a lot of what you learn as you scale a business, and you know, when I started with Sanford, it was nothing, it's an idea, now it's a pretty sizable business, is what got you here may not get you there. 
And so always remaining very vigilant, very strategic, very analytical in, in how you are allocating you know, your resources, whether it's time or dollars or your team to make sure you're doing the best thing for your company. Because the thing about startups is you know, the company that I started with when it was four of us in a room filling little perfume bottles is not the company that it was, you know, six months later when we were in Y Combinator. And it wasn't the same company that it was, you know, a year later when we had 20,000 subscribers or, you know, several hundred subscribers that it is today and, and several hundred employees. And so that piece of the entrepreneurial journey of just always keeping an eye and understanding the evolution, I think is super, super important. And within that is like, keep your eye on the ball. What is your, you know, what is your North Star? What is your KPI? What are you driving towards? I think that particularly in marketing, you can get very distracted. You know, there's a lot of things that are like fun and, you know, sort of vanity metrics is the word I would use that are like, but look, we got featured in this podcast. No fun. <laughs> this podcast is very important, but other ones. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or we got this prize or we got this and the other. And that's all great. And that sort of all adds to the flywheel. But are you growing? Right. Are you building your top line and your bottom line? Do people love your product? Are people sticking around? So all those really core metrics I think that's another part that's really important in the entrepreneurial journey is, you know, keep yourself brutally honest so that you don't get too sort of distracted by, by vanity metrics and not things that drive your business. When did you know that it was time to, to move on and, and start Red Bike Capital? You know, for me, it, it, it was quite organic. A lot of it started because, you know, as Scentbird grew, I've always loved early stage and I've always loved just helping entrepreneurs. I'm, I'm, I'm just the kind of, I, I like it. It's karma. I don't know. That's the only way I can say it. I truly believe in karma and whatever you give, the universe gives back. And so I was talking to a lot of entrepreneurs, giving a lot of advice. And, you know, some of it was just, you know, a quick phone call. Hey, how do you think about influencer strategy? Or how do you, what's the best way to do sweepstakes? I mean, very tactical stuff. And some of it was very sort of macro. And what I realized is, I, you know, from there, I started to do a little bit of angel investing. And, and frankly, you know, the, the personal balance sheet can only go so far. And so I started to do little investments here and there. And I really started to love the venture capital world and started to see a lot of opportunity. So about two and a half years ago, two years ago, two and a half years ago, I actually left Sanford and briefly joined a small VC firm here in New York called 5-4 Ventures. You know, but what I really wanted to do was build my own fund. I wanted to build, you know, I thought there was such an opportunity to put together sort of all that I had built in terms of my network and the, and the incredible founders that I had met along the way. You know, I was sort of already doing the job of a VC, but I wanted to do it for myself. And so that's sort of what led me to Red Bike. In 2020, you were named to Entrepreneur Magazine's Top 100 Powerful Women list. Can you share what it means to you to be a powerful businesswoman? You know, I think that one of the things that for me is a key part of power is just to, I call it take up space. Like, I think that this, you know, 
imposter syndrome be damned. <laughs> like, uh, you know, you have to believe in your idea and take up space. And even if you're the only woman in the room, and let me tell you, as a venture capitalist, it continues. You know, every time I have a conversation with a founder, and whether they're diverse, you know, whether they're diverse or a female founder or any or a white guy. You know, it, it, it continues to blow my mind how often I get, oh, you're, you're the only woman I've talked to. You're the only Latina I've talked to, right? But just you deserve to be there. Take up space. Have confidence in your idea. Don't let gender make you feel like you don't belong. Don't let, you know, your background let you feel like you don't belong. Like focus on the ideas, focus on the skills, focus on the traction. For me, that's what power is about. It's like just own, take up your own take up room, take up space. Have you found that you have faced any challenges as a woman in business over the years? I mean, I think all of us, you know, my, my favorite quote is always the Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers quote, which is, you know, he did everything. And, and for those who don't know Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers, they've been dead for a long time, <laughs> but they were a famous pair of dancers. Yeah. But the best quote is, you know, he did everything she did, except she did it backwards and in heels. Mm -hmm. That's kind of it, right? Like, of course, you will face challenges. Of course, you will, you know, I think there's a lot that's been written about the fact that you will just face extra questions. I mean, there's a lot of data around the fact that men are judged on potential and women are judged on performance. But when you know the rules of the game, it helps a lot. It may not be fair, but it is what it is. And at least you can go in with a plan, right? And so I think that for us, for example, you know, I, I always like to tell the story of when we were fundraising for Scentbird and we would talk about the fragrance category and, you know, lots of male VCs would kind of look at us like, eh, fragrance, who care? You know, how small is this? Who, how is this important? But then if you kind of put some data behind it, say, well, actually the fragrance category is $21 billion, which is three times the size of the blades and razors category, which is 7 billion. And they're like, oh yeah, I thought shaving was important because I shave, right? <laughs> so I, I think that, you know, little tips like that, where you can establish the importance of what you're building are super important. Just being factual, being focus yourself on the numbers, you are going to face, as I said, extra scrutiny as a woman. And you just have to, I, I mean, I think that you have to work that, that bit a little harder. I always say that for me, I call it the, like, I have the anti-bias is what I call it, which is whenever I see a diverse founder or whenever I see a female founder, I think about the fact of how much harder they had to work to get to the point of where they are. Mm -hmm how much harder they had to prove themselves and how much better entrepreneur that makes them. So that that's the way I see it. Unfortunately, not everybody does. Well, we see it that way too. And exactly. for all of our entrepreneurs who are listening right now and are fundraising, uh, definitely listen to, to all of Rachel's tips because they are they are right on point. And I'll share the quick backstory of how Rachel and I actually connected this past year. Our, our mutual connection and friend and entrepreneurista friend, Arianne Perry, who was also on the podcast, connected us because I was in the process of fundraising for another venture market, which is 
an app for parents to buy and sell baby and kids gently use items. So Arian had connected us because you were looking at investing in this space. And we met a few times and you decided to make an investment in our company. So we've been so grateful to be connected with you and definitely want to encourage our entrepreneurs who, who are fundraising to definitely reach out to you. Thank you. Yeah. You know, I think that, you know, we're just getting started with our fund. I think there is just such huge potential out there among, as I said, female founders, diverse founders. You know, if you look at the amount of venture capital that goes towards women and and minority, I mean, last year is 2.3%. I mean, it's, it's sad. The numbers are just so small. It breaks down, it's 3.7 billion going towards women versus 160 billion going towards males. I mean, those numbers are shocking. It's it just like archaic, right? Like, it, But if you look at this other side of the table, which is the, the VC side, it's only about 5% of women that are decision makers in VC. And so I think there's a lot of room, but we are making strides. We just have to keep at it. <laughs> If you could go back in time and tell your younger self one piece of advice, what would you tell yourself? You know, I think as women, we all suffer, not self-esteem, but just believing in yourself. Again, that take up space, own your capabilities, own what you're good at. It's definitely something that's taken me years. Now I have a daughter who's nine years old and I have a son and man, it's different. I think as women... You know, throughout my career, I I just feel like I could have done a better job at just presenting myself at being more self-confident and articulating my value proposition better. So that's definitely one thing I would have, it's like, it's not, there's a, there's a fine balance, right? Like you don't want to be cocky or boastful and that's never going to be my style, but I think just owning who you are and owning your achievements, I think that's really important as women. Definitely could not agree more. Rachel, can you share any tips for our entrepreneurs who are raising money right now? Best practices, especially for presenting over Zoom right now, because a lot of these meetings are happening over Zoom. So what have you found works really well in a pitch? What doesn't work well? Any tips and tricks you can share and what you look for? Sure. So first of all, it's really important before the meeting. I recommend sending the deck prior I recommend sending a very brief summary prior. So first of all, you know, how you get connected to this investor is important. And I think warm introductions from other entrepreneurs, exactly like we met, are the best avenues. So that's one thing I would tell you is like, you know, nurture your tribe of fellow entrepreneurs and get other entrepreneurs to help you in the fundraising process. That is incredibly helpful. I would say second, second layer would be other investors. And third layer is cold outreach, but know that those, you know, unfortunately, those tend to go into the spam (laughs) box. So just know that. So first of all, how you get connected is important. Number two, I do think the pre-meeting sent, you know, getting a good impression. So a very brief, there's nothing I hate more than a very long rambling email. Like you, oh. More like dreading that. Oh my god! Oh my god! I'm already and and, like I I self edit so much. I always joke that like I write an email and then I remove every exclamation point. (laughs) (laughs) Just remove, right? You know, be factual, be brief, 
I think super important. I think sending the deck is ahead of time is also super important because to your point about the fact that we're in this world where we're all presenting on Zoom, mm -hmm. I hate meetings where you end up having to just go through the deck the entire time. It really takes away from the connection and getting to know the founder and you getting to know me. I mean, I think it's totally okay to say, hey, we, you know, as we're having a conversation to say, hey, we have a slide exactly about that. Can I just pop it on? That's totally okay. But having to go slide by slide through 25 slides, like shoot me now, <laughs> right? I, I just don't think it's good for the investor. It's not good for the founder. I would also just say like, be very thoughtful about your slides. Why are they there? What is the purpose they're achieving? Are they easy to digest, particularly for somebody who doesn't know your industry? Because, you know, even though I come from a consumer background and I know a lot about e-commerce, I may not know exactly all the players in XYZ category, right? Like I may not know all the baby marketplaces. So making it very easy for me to digest that, I think that's very important. And then I think the other part of it is investors are humans too. So some sort of you know, you don't want to get too sidetracked because usually you have short meetings. It's only half an hour. Uh, so you don't want to spend 20 minutes chatting about, you know, life and how crazy the world is right now. But you do want to establish some sort of human connection. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Those are really, really great tips. And because we've been so focused on connecting over Zoom, I personally have been obsessed with the whole with the whole Zoom and video meeting experience, which is why Stephanie and I created DigiCard. So our team uses these and we share them with other businesses. Oh yeah, I got I got them. I, I was very excited about this. It's very cute. Yes, yeah. So that's a tip for you that you maybe you want to whip them out in your your <laughs> yes. business meetings definitely lightens the mood. Next time you want to invest, you can hold up your yes sign. <laughs> yes. I mean, this is definitely the best one. <laughs> oh yes. Can't hear you. And you're on mute. <laughs> oh man. That's like the, the saying of the year, right? You're on mute. But yeah, I mean, I think that there's, you know, Zoom is a whole other universe of you know, how do you establish sort of a warm connection? Mm -hmm. Because I do think that, you know, particularly at the early stage where, where I invest, I care about the product, I care about the traction, I care about the market you're investing in. But a huge part of it is I'm investing in team. Mm -hmm. I, I, I want to know that you are the most talented team to, you know, achieve this mission. And so getting that sense of who you are as a person, who you are as an individual, who you are, um, leading this company is super important. Is there something that you're most proud of to date in your career? I mean, I think career-wise, definitely the journey that we've had on Scentbird and, and it continues to thrive. And even though I'm not there, I, I continue to be very proud of their achievements. So I, I would say that I think there's just something about knowing you were there when it was like four guys, girls in a room, like spraying little bottles. And I always joke like, like the fact that I know that in New York City, the post office, it, the Madison Square Garden post office is open 24 hours because <laughs> I actually went and delivered little packages at 3 a.m., right? Like having that gritty like details of the early, early start and then seeing what your your baby can become. I think that's it's been an incredible journey. I'm very proud of that. And I will add personally, and, and I think it's relevant for this audience, the fact that I do have two amazing kids and, and the fact that I've somehow found a little 
not always at the same time, but found balance. And I think life is important too. Absolutely. It's definitely not easy to, to manage and balance starting businesses and families. And there's so much to learn and so much to, to juggle, but somehow as women, and we say mama pernistas, we, we make it all happen. Yeah. You know, I, I, what's the old, like, if you want something done, give it to a busy mom. Yeah. Like, absolutely. <laughs> I have literally every second of my day calendared out every single, every single day. And that's how I'm able to stay organized and, and get it all done. Are there certain things that you do to stay organized and, and on track? I'm big on calendar and scheduling. I, I do believe in a little bit of balance. I do yoga. Mm. I try to do it every morning. It just makes me happy. I am. It's like the counter, like I'm very high energy. I'm very, I, I, I can be quite intense. And so I find that something a little lighter and calmer is actually really good to kind of balance me out. So making time for that is important for me. You know, I, I just try to get my moments as, as well scheduled as I can. I do a lot of to-do lists. I, I do find that the old school sort of notebook, writing it down and the satisfaction of crossing it off, as much as there are lots of very good tools, it's really good for me. Another little hack that I really like is this app called Pocket, because I read so much and I get so much information thrown at me. And what I was finding is I'd have like 20 tabs open in my computer because I, I had all this stuff that I didn't have time to read that moment, but wanted to. And so for me, Pocket has been like life-changing because I can just save it and tag it. And then when I have a minute, I'll just go through all of it. So that's a, a little tip that works for me. I'm downloading that app downloading right now. Oh. And I, you know what? Someone told me about this app a few years ago. And I, if I don't write something down, I'm on to the next thing and forget about it. So now I'm going to yeah, download it's just it. Like people yeah. are constantly sending you yeah. interesting articles or you're seeing interesting things in a tweet or on LinkedIn. And I, I can't digest, like I, I'll, I'll eyeball it, but yes, it's awesome. Got it. Saving here. Because you can, you can also tag things. So I have like marketing tax and I have beauty stuff and I have e-commerce stuff and I have VC stuff. So I, I, I love it because it kind of organizes my brain a little bit. Oh, that's <laughs> awesome. I am like the queen of tabs, having 50 tabs open and then going back and having to like close out of all of the articles that I've opened on my phone. So exactly. All right, I will keep you posted on, on how this one goes. <laughs> Awesome. <laughs> At Social Fly, we specialize in helping brands reach and engage women audiences. I'd love to hear from you if you have any insights into how to effectively communicate to women on social media. So, you know, when we started Scentford, what we started with, even before we did any of the other big tactics, was influencers. And I'm still a huge believer in influencer marketing. I think that particularly reaching a female audience, it is highly, highly effective. I think there's an art and a science to it. So the art of it is to your point, like how do you communicate? How do you make it relevant? And I think a big part of it goes to another theme that I talked earlier, which was about talk to your audience, find out what it is that they care about. So for example, when we started Scentbird, we had a couple of theories about, you know, why would anybody want to sign up to Scentbird? And, you know, it was, one was about don't like going to a store and the pushy salesperson and getting sprayed in the face. <laughs> one was about, is it like you get stuck with these big bottles and they just are like, we called it the perfume graveyard, sort of stuck there 
on your on your vanity. And then the third one was, well, they just want it for 15 bucks. And I'll quiz you guys. Which one do you think was the one? Which one was the one? Which that... one was the most resonant or the least resonating? Those. The one that worth with when you walk into a department store and they're spraying your face and like bug bugging you. Was that, that was it? actually the worst performer. We were surprised because that was our thesis that that would be the strongest. But actually, a lot of people like to shop and they don't mind the, the salespeople. <laughs> I hate it. <laughs> I hate it too. But apparently a lot of people like it. So good for the salespeople. But what, <laughs> what we did find is the variety and the picking new things that was really important to our customers. And so we really honed in on that message. But the point is we were wrong. We all thought the wrong thing. Mm -hmm. And so that's where the art goes into it of studying the message, understanding the message, testing the message. So the same thing around influencers, you know, we had a lot of the theories around like which of influencers work. Would it just be like mommy bloggers or fashion bloggers or travel bloggers, right? It was a travel spray. And for example, one of the things we found out is travel bloggers bombed because nobody wants to sign up for a subscription that you only use when you travel. Mm -hmm. So, okay, that made sense. But beauty was super for us. And mom bog so-so because again, we talked to enough customers to understand that when they were taking mommy advice, they really were worried about their kids. They weren't really thinking about themselves. So it's like getting to all that sort of granular data, that's the whole art of influencer marketing, frankly, of content yeah. marketing. I think of a lot of pieces of it. And then there is the, the science of it, which is figuring out if you are doing paid influencer marketing, how much should you be paying them? Should you be doing larger ones, smaller ones? Where's the right ROI? And I think there's one of the most important, you know, one of the most important things is to take a really systematic approach, like set up a spreadsheet, look at every influencer, look at your cost per acquisition, look at their cost per view, like really get very data driven. So it's not just sort of, a, oh, I did five of them and it doesn't work. Well, you know, you have to think about it a lot deeper than that. Um, same for podcasts. I mean, I, I think our approach with podcasts, podcasts were a really good uh, channel for us, but it was the same approach where we really had to take sort of the the art of like what themes worked, what type of conversation worked, and then the science part of it of like very granular, you know, where's the ROI for us? For entrepreneurs who are just starting out and trying to test some different tactics, what do you think is an adequate budget to, you know, test influencers and test podcasts? I know for Sanford, you had raised money. So you had, you had somewhat of a marketing budget, but was there like a sweet spot for you for testing? So first of all, we, we had money later, but definitely not at the beginning. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, at the beginning, we were super lean and we spent all our money on perfume bottles. So we had no money. <laughs> the one piece of advice that I always give people is do one, maybe two, maximum three things. Well, no more than that. I think that particularly in the early stage, it's so tempting to be like, well, I can do PR and we can do podcasts and we can do Facebook and we can do Instagram. You know, find so first of all, think about your business and think about your audience. I think that's super important and pick one or two. I think right now there's definitely an opportunity in TikTok. I'm talking to a lot of entrepreneurs that are seeing great responses. And so one of the things I learned with Sanford is like, there's always these magical little windows of arbitrage 
where you can get into a new strategy before all the big guys go there and spoil it for everyone like Facebook right now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it just gets too expensive. Everybody's there. Yeah. Uh, the price is fully baked in. You're, you're, it's really hard as a small founder. So I think thinking through those, in terms of a hard number, I think, you know, it's hard because I understand that even a thousand or five thousand dollars can be a lot of money for some, for a starting brand. But it's also hard because you know if you just spend a hundred bucks, like, there's only so much you yeah. can learn. So just be very thoughtful with your spend, and particularly if you're using an agency, rein them in really tight because the last thing you want to do is have an agency that sort of like goes hog wild for a week. And next thing you know, they've spent your whole month's budget and you really didn't learn anything. So making them really accountable so that every penny, you know, if it can't get you sales, you get learning. I think that's really, really important. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. I couldn't agree more about TikTok. Facebook is is definitely, definitely not seeing the results that it used to, although that, that may change. It's always changing. I mean, and, uh, and it's hard because Facebook is, is still a huge channel. It's still a hugely scalable channel. It's still a channel that you can, you know, sort of test with a few hundred dollars. So it's, it's not that I'm saying don't do Facebook because I think it's hard not to do Facebook, but, you know, keep your eyes open on, on what are other opportunities. For sure. Courtney's work robe that I'm wearing just went viral on TikTok. <laughs> Yes. Yes. So I'm big on TikTok these days. I definitely saw a huge lift uh, in sales on the day that it went viral. So for anyone listening, it, it absolutely works. Bravo. Rachel, this is a fun segment we like to do that you might know about because you listen to the podcast. We're going to do a couple rapid fire questions. So the first thing that comes to your mind, the first few words, are you ready? Yes. Okay. If you could learn any new skill today, what would it be? Programming. Ah. What song would you say sums you up best? Life is a Highway, which is a cheesy 90s song. <laughs> I want to ride that, it all Now that night song long. is going That's to get stuck me. in my head. I love that. <laughs> what is your most used emoji when you send a text? Winky. <laughs> if your life were a movie, what actor would portray you? Ooh. I love Penelope Cruz. Ooh, that's a good one. <laughs> what is your favorite tech or business solution that's helped you in business? I would say just all the collaboration tools of Google. Yeah. Like just working, you know, Google Sheets, Google Word, like just the fact that you can collaborate with others. We love Google Sheets. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Who is your role model? My mom. I think she is the most empathetic person. I've seen how she makes, we we always have a running joke in my house that we're three siblings. And if you ask me or my two brothers, who's the favorite child, each of us will respond that we are because (laughs) she always made us feel that way. And I think that just having that ability, the emotional IQ, the Mm. intelligence, the way she can make everybody feel like they're the most important person in the room. I think that's incredible. Uh, And my dad, I would say as well, he's an entrepreneur. He's one of the most creative business people. You know, he's in his seventies and still coming up with ideas of, you know, how, how he could start a business and, you know, not afraid of technology. The other day I I tweeted this because it was just too funny. 
I, I called my dad and he leaves me a voice message. He's like, hey, Rach, sorry, I'm taking a, a Facebook marketing class. Can't talk to you now. Bye. <laughs> I'm like, I love that. What class was he taking? <laughs> I don't know. Some online class on digital marketing. I love it. <laughs> oh my gosh. I love that too. All right. Final rapid fire question. What is one thing that our audience would be surprised to learn about you? I'm a Cuban, Costa Rican, Turkish, German with a Dutch last name. <laughs> oh my gosh. I think I met someone similar to me. Yes. I'm a mutt too. Yes. My mom is Puerto Rican, Spanish. And then my dad, he passed away, but he was half Korean, half Hungarian, Jewish. Oh, wow. Yes, we are. <laughs> I call us the sisterhood of stealth Latinas. Like we have yes. all these layers in between, but yeah, very cool. Yeah, so, so cool. Well, I want to know, what does a typical day look like outside of work? Weekends and holidays, I definitely love my, my little yoga. I'm obsessed with this uh, Y7 yoga. I'll put a plug for them. I think they're awesome. It's not super hot because I faint, but hot enough yoga. It's in the dark. So I get to like shut down my brain and not be distracted. And I love it because you do three flows three times. First is like really slow and position. The same second one is fast. But the key thing is the third one, they shut up and they yank up the music. And so if you didn't pay attention, if my mind is racing and thinking of 20,000 things, which it usually is, you don't know how to do the routine. So I love my, my yoga. And then I like to spend time with my family. I mean, I have two great kids and I work super hard. And so I really have fun with them. I mean, my daughter is nine and she's kind of my buddy and, and we do a lot of stuff together. And my son is 14. And so it's it's like catching him and finding those things that will connect and, and have good conversations. Uh, so I do a lot of that. I'm a huge foodie. Uh, so I love to cook. I love to go out and try New York city restaurants. So that's a lot of what I like to do. And in, before this crazy COVID world, I love to travel, but we'll see what happens now. Are your kids entrepreneurial? Are they involved oh in your God. business? So much so. So I have to tell you during COVID, my son, who's 14, came up with this idea of a website called Kids Tech Help. Still exists. And he realized that all these parents were shifting to remote learning. And a yeah. lot of them weren't digitally savvy and were really struggling. Like, how do you set up Google Sheets and how do you set up accounts? So he created an online tutoring service for kids that were doing remote learning, but also for parents to help them set up. And the funniest part was we started to do, this is like in the dead of COVID last year, sort of April, May, when like, you know, all you could do was walk in the street. So we would put up flyers and we put a flyer in our building and it turned out that there was this woman that is, her name is Julia Pinsley-Moore and she wrote a book called Million Dollar, uh, Million Dollar Woman. Yes. And it turned, she's awesome. It turns out she lives in my building and she was writing her next book. And um, she's like, I need an editor. I'll, you know, she would print out, it was the craziest process. She would print out and hand edit the notes and Ben would go in, edit the book. And he, that was his first. So his first job ever was actually editing a book about women's entrepreneurship. I mean, what can make a mother happier? And so, yeah, so he, 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 she, Julia just wrote a book called yeah. Go Big Now. Yeah. And Ben is mentioned in the book and I'm eternally thankful, 
but it's just like the coolest thing ever. That was my son's first job. So. I love it. And and all of the, all the worlds collide. So I'm actually on Julia's board for a million oh dollar women. And we've known Julia for so many years. When Courtney and I first started Social Fly, Julia was leading the EO group, the Entrepreneurs Organization Accelerator. So when we first started Social Fly, we joined that accelerator program and Julia oh was leading God. that whole program. So she's been a close- yeah. I'm entrepreneurs with friend of ours week, for, so oh my gosh, amazing. Yes. She is, she is the best. So, yeah, but it was so funny. We didn't know each other. We lived in the same building, but we didn't know each other. And it, for months we never met because it was in the middle of COVID and we were yeah. all literally just slipping pieces of paper under each other's oh my gosh. <laughs> doors. That and my so son, you know, he had his, his per hour job and she was wonderful. And it was the best first job for my son. So he's super entrepreneurial and and so is my daughter in a different way, but, but he's like, it's just like the coolest experience. <laughs> that is so cool. I already see it in my daughter and she's just turned two and yeah. she had me get her her own keyboard. She's typing. She wants to work like I'm working and she's two. I'm like, oh my goodness, we're, uh, <laughs> we're going to be, uh, I think selling lemonade on the, on oh, the yeah. corner oh, pretty we've, soon. <laughs> we, we live very close to Columbus circle. So we've literally like gotten in trouble with the police because my daughter wanted to sell lemonade at the entrance of Central Park and Columbus circle. And obviously the police weren't so hot on that. Apparently you need, you a, need, you a, need permit. a permit, but uh, <laughs> yes. just if, you, if she could just smile and maybe they'll, maybe they'll yeah, make her they were fine, But they were like, uh, no, you can't do that. <laughs> Rachel, do you have a mantra or quote that defines your work or, or life? Um, I used to say Teflon like, don't let it stick, right? Keep on moving forward. Keep on moving. This too shall pass. I think that it's important that, you know, for me, just remembering that 99% of the worst outcomes you think about never actually happen. Uh, so I, that, that I think is, is an important mantra. I think I also think a lot about, you know, people always say that, oh, you're so optimistic. You're so cheery. But ironically, I'm not. I actually think things will go wrong most of the time. But if you think that way, you actually end up being quite happy because you're often pleasantly surprised. <laughs> right? And so I, I believe a lot in like going through life, like don't, if you assume things will go wrong, but you still do them because you believe in it, when they go well, celebrate them. And so I, I, I believe a lot in that. If you could share one last business tip with the entrepreneurista audience, what would it be? I mean, I think that the, the biggest business tip for me is, you know, keep your eye on the ball. Don't get lost. I think, again, because I come from the marketing side, don't get lost on the marketing, on the marketing, blah, blah, blah. Don't get lost on the vanity metrics. You know, take a good hard look at your business and be really thoughtful about how you allocate time and resources to move it forward. For our entrepreneurs that are raising funding right now, can you share what type of companies you look for? Um, some maybe some of the companies that you're excited about that you've been investing in, so they know they should reach out to you. Sure. So the way, so we we invest in sort of three buckets of categories, and and I like to call it the future of what and how we buy. So I'm looking at. On the one hand, consumer brands and consumer tech. And I will say I'm probably one of the toughest people to convince because I've actually built consumer brands. I know how hard it is. So 
I think that's one bucket of it is consumer tech subscriptions, but also consumer brands obviously do a lot of beauty because I have a huge background there and wellness and I get really excited. And, and I think there's so much opportunity because, you know, I know a thing or two about these categories and, and a lot of investors don't. So I think that's a really important category. I think the, the next category sort of comes from that, which is e-commerce infrastructure and the fact that all these new companies have such incredible needs in how they can scale, how they can build their businesses. So think about acquisition, retentions, remarketing, returns. And I also think about channels of distribution and marketplaces. So for example, market fits very nicely into that thesis. As we think about this very crowded world that we all live in, how is commerce going to happen? How do people find stuff? How do people select stuff? So whether it's curation, whether it is content and ways to guide people through the shopping uh, pattern, I think marketplaces are doing a really good job at that. And I think the third piece is around fintech. Uh, I think a lot about access to capital. I think a lot about accessibility and creating new ways for people to manage their money. I think there's a lot of underserved audiences, obviously, around women and minorities. So one of the companies that I would talk about is called Tomo Credit. It's led by a fantastic female founder. Her name is Christy Kim. And what she did is, you know, she herself was an immigrant. She's from Korea. She came here and she'd never heard of a FICO score or anything like that. And she couldn't understand. She's like, you know, I'm a student. Why can't I get a credit card? I, I, I have money. I have. And so what she's creating is a credit card company called Tomo Credit that is focused on increasing credit card access for recent immigrants mm. and students. And I think what's really interesting is that she's proving out an algorithm that is allowing credit card companies to issue credit to people who don't have a FICO score. And she just closed her A round. So we're super proud of her uh, with some incredible investors like KB Financial. And, you know, I, I think that this idea of like do good by and do well is something mm -hmm. that I get really excited about. I love that. Thank you for sharing that. Our last question today, and I can't believe how quickly this time has flown by. So we'll definitely have to do a follow-up on, on LinkedIn or an Instagram live for sure. I love that. But what does being an entrepreneurista mean to you? You know, I think that a lot of what we, the themes we touched upon earlier, I think that part of it is, look, we're just entrepreneurs. It's sort of like, I, I sometimes cringe at this idea of the female founder, like we are founders, mm -hmm. right? Like we are building mega businesses. We are super capable, own your space, own that business that you're building. And so I think it's really important, but I do think that there's a part of it of like, I'm also really proud to be a woman and really proud to be a mom and really proud of who I am. And, and I kind of have fun with it. I, mm -hmm. I own it. Right. And so for me, it's a combination of that. Like I'm a serious business person. I'm a force to be reckoned with, but yeah, I'm also who I am. And I, I kind of like it. It's all right <laughs> with all the challenges and the good and the bad, but I, I'm, you know, be comfortable in your own skin, own it. I love that. Rachel, thank you so much for sharing your story, your journey, all of this incredible advice. Where can our entrepreneurs find you and follow you? And what's the best way for them to maybe email or reach out to you? Sure. So I'm very active on Twitter, rtenbrink1. Also on LinkedIn, Rachel Tenbrink, you can find me. And you can definitely email me, rachel at redbikecapital.com. 
uh, or find me in any of those two places. Amazing. This was so wonderful. I'm Stephanie. And I'm Courtney. And this is the best business meeting we've ever had. Hey, thanks for listening and leaving us a five-star review. We'd really appreciate it. And we'd love to stay in touch with each of you. You can listen to all of our latest episodes at entreprenista.com and connect with us on Instagram at entreprenistas. We'd also love to invite you to join the Entreprenista League, our private membership community for trailblazing women. You can head over to entreprenista.com forward slash the league. We'll see you there. Wishing you a productive week ahead.